Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer in for Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Debris from the Titanic tour submarine found on the seafloor. The U.S. Coast Guard says there was a catastrophic implosion and all five on board are presumed dead. A devastating tornado touches down in a Texas town, killing at least four people. The southern United States has been bracing for severe storms in recent days. President Biden defending his decision to call China's Xi Jinping a dictator. This as Biden and the Indian Prime Minister vow to bolster ties. A House committee today voted to release IRS whistleblower testimony that seems to show government bias towards the president's son. And the Supreme Court dashes the hopes of the Navajo Nation for a way to get more water. The decision blocks the tribe's access to the Colorado River. A major breakthrough in the search for the missing Titanic tourist submarine. The U.S. Coast Guard found a debris field of the vessel earlier today. Tragically, all crew on board are presumed dead. The U.S. Coast Guard announced Thursday they found a debris field near the wreckage of the Titanic. Experts determined that the debris is consistent with the Titan submersible that went missing on Sunday. This morning, an ROV or remote-operated vehicle from the vessel Horizon Arctic discovered the tail cone of the Titan submersible approximately 1,600 feet from the bow of the Titanic on the seafloor. The Coast Guard says they believe the vessel experienced a catastrophic implosion and they are still working out the exact timeline of what happened to it. Officials noted their listening devices didn't detect any explosive event in the water throughout the search. The noises they did detect were unrelated. But there doesn't appear to be any uh, connection between uh, the noises and uh, uh, the location uh, on the seafloor. Again, uh, this uh, was a uh, catastrophic uh, implosion of the vessel, which would have generated uh, a significant broadband sound uh, down there that uh, the sonar buoys would have picked up. The Coast Guard notified the families of the five passengers on board and offered their condolences. It's unclear if or when their bodies can be recovered. This is a incredibly unforgiving uh, environment down there uh, on the seafloor, uh, and uh, the debris is consistent with a catastrophic uh, implosion of uh, the vessel. And so uh, we'll continue to uh, work and continue to uh, search uh, the area. Uh, down there, but uh, I, I don't have an answer for uh, prospects at this time. In a statement Thursday, OceanGate, which is the company behind the submersible, said they believe the five passengers have, quote, sadly been lost. They are OceanGate CEO Stockton Rush, Shazada Dawood, and his son Suleiman Dawood, Hamish Harding, and Paul-Henri Narjolet. In the next 24 hours, authorities will begin to demobilize the medical personnel and vessels involved in the search. But remote operations will continue on the seafloor. The U.S. Coast Guard will release future updates on their Twitter page. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. At least four people were killed overnight when storms brought a devastating tornado to a northwestern Texas town. Search and rescue efforts continue. My team is currently in close coordination with local authorities 
assisting with disaster relief and, and searching for those who may be injured or trapped by debris as that continues. And, and we're praying for the Matador community following this. The tornado struck Matador, a town of a few hundred people, roughly 280 miles northwest of Dallas on Wednesday evening. At least four people were killed, 10 others were injured, and dozens of buildings were devastated. All residents have been accounted for. Governor Greg Abbott issued a disaster declaration and deployed state emergency resources to help Matador and the surrounding communities. The twister came as powerful storms pummeled parts of the western and central U.S. People in Texas and Oklahoma are also battling extreme temperatures this week, above 100 degrees in some areas. This is while some 500,000 homes and businesses are without power following devastating storms. The White House rolling out the red carpet for Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi. What the two leaders say as tensions with China continue to mount. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Welcoming Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi to the White House on Thursday, President Biden vows to bolster ties with the world's biggest democracy. It's a democracy, a partnership that is among the most consequential in the world, that is stronger, closer, and more dynamic than any time in history. The high-profile state visit comes with a grand welcome ceremony, a state dinner tonight, it is an exceptional privilege. And a rare joint address to Congress. It also comes as U.S. and India announce a flurry of deals on defense and technology, including a purchase by India of U.S. spy drones that could help India detect and counter moves by the Chinese military. This will give our defense cooperation a new character in the times to come. U.S. officials say that Washington wants India to be a strategic counterweight to China in the Indo-Pacific region. And the Biden-Modi meeting comes on the heels of Secretary of State Antony Blinken's visit to Beijing and just days after President Biden called China Xi Jinping a dictator. Today, when asked if his comments could complicate his administration's efforts to try to ease tensions with Beijing, and President Biden said no. The idea of my choosing and avoiding saying what I think is the facts with regard to the relationship with India, with uh, China, is, uh, is just not uh, something I'm going to uh, change very much. And President Biden asked that what makes U.S. relation with India different from that with China is the fact that India is a democracy. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. To delve deeper into the international implications here, we spoke with Alex Gray, a senior fellow at American Foreign Policy Council. He's also the former chief of staff for the White House National Security Council. Alex Gray, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. So, Alex, India isn't a U.S. ally, but it's being treated like an ally. There's a state dinner for Prime Minister Narendra Modi. What is so special about India to get this type of treatment? Well, India really has the possibility of being the deciding U.S. partner in the Indo-Pacific. Um, they just overtook China and the size of their population, uh, obviously the world's largest democracy. Uh, their their economy is, is growing rapidly and their military capabilities are, are expanding at a, at a pretty fast clip. Um, and they, under Prime Minister Modi's leadership, 
they have come to understand in a way that few countries have the clear and present danger posed by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you take all that and you put it together and they really can, they, they have the possibility of being the pivot point uh, in turning the Indo-Pacific in a direction much more uh, amenable to, to U.S. interests in a free and open region. And it seems in terms of the economy and manufacturing, Elon Musk actually just met with Modi yesterday. He was also recently in China. How do you see the U.S. and India working together, either in terms of manufacturing or supply chains, moving that away from China? India is a tremendous opportunity for U.S. companies and, and European companies as well uh, to be the alternative to China. Um, Chinese manufacturing, Chinese supply chains, as we've seen, are a huge vulnerability for the West. And India, with its uh, young population, with its energetic population, um, with its, its growing uh, middle class, really can be a place, not just as an export market, but potentially as a place for a manufacturing hub and a, a, lo a location where our supply chains can reset uh, as we, we in the West collectively have learned uh, since COVID-19, just how vulnerable we are to the CCP's depredations. Uh, so I think it's incumbent on the US and on Europe to find ways uh, to work with Prime Minister Modi to build up that Indian capacity to be a manufacturing alternative to China uh, for all of our interests. And Alex, in terms of geopolitics, India is a member of the Quad Alliance, but is also quite close with Russia, kind of relying on Russia for weapons in terms of China. And it's been criticized by the West because India hasn't criticized Russia in terms of the Ukraine war. So given all these different factors, how should the U.S. approach foreign policy with India? Well, we need to understand India's historic position uh, and its historic strategic position India was a leader of the non-aligned movement during the Cold War. India comes uh, to the U.S. Uh, allied bloc, to our Quad Alliance, um, from a very unique perspective. And we, I think, uh, strategically, we need to be very patient with India as they attempt to, to become more comfortable working closely with the United States and with Australia, Japan, and uh, our other partners. I mean, Tiffany, we have to remember India has only in the last several years realized at the highest levels and in a really visceral sense uh, just what a threat the CCP poses to India. And this, as you know, this was really highlighted by the horrible attack on the border uh, in 2020 when 20 Indian soldiers were, were brutally murdered by the Chinese. Um, and, and this has really started a strategic revolution in Delhi uh, and look, it's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to change 70 years of Indian strategic policy uh, in a couple of years. It's going to take persistence and patient statecraft. And I hope sincerely that we don't, um, in our exuberance to get India closer to the United States, we don't uh, do and say things that are counterproductive um, whether it's about Russia, whether it's about some of the traditional reliance that India has had on Russia for its arms and for its military equipment. I think we need to take the position that this is a long-term strategic realignment and we need to be focused and we need to be patient as India adapts to its new circumstances.
Alex Gray, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Tiffany. Despite a lack of support from House GOP leadership, Colorado Congressman Lowen Boebert pushed a resolution to impeach President Biden. Republicans then voted to send the articles of impeachment to the Homeland Security Committee for future consideration. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more from Capitol Hill. So this House vote ultimately turned into one that gave hesitant Republicans a way out of a tough vote. It was originally launched by Congressman Lauren Boebert as a privileged motion, which would have forced the House to directly vote on whether or not to impeach President Biden. However, leadership was unhappy with this, saying that it would undermine current investigations into the Biden family's business dealings and Biden's border policies. Here's what House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had to say before convincing Lauren Boebert to make this a less consequential vote. It, it would discredit if the American public sits back and looks at you just you just move something onto the floor as serious as impeachment for two days, never talk, never going through a committee, never showing to the American public the case. He later convinced Boebert to turn her resolution into a rule which simply sends this articles of impeachment to the Homeland Security Committee for further consideration on whether or not Biden's border policies warrant impeachment. Some Democrats accuse Republicans of trying to deflect from Trump's legal issues. That while you want to distract and deflect from all of Donald Trump's legal problems, and they continue to mount, I think there'll be probably more charges we expect in the coming weeks, in the coming months. And for her part, Congresswoman Boebert argued on the House floor that President Biden has essentially eroded the separation of powers with his current border policies. Take a look. By nullifying our immigration and border security laws through a systematic lack of enforcement, President Biden has not only threatened the lives of countless Americans with the fentanyl crisis and increased crime. Later, we heard from Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who has been pushing articles of impeachment of her own. She tells me that this initiative was actually started and initiated by her. I introduced articles uh, impeaching Joe Biden on the border issue first and then asked her to co-sponsor them. And then she copied my articles and wrote her own and then introduced them and did a privilege resolution. Now Green says she plans to file these articles of impeachment as privilege motions so that she can push these impeachment proceedings as she sees fit. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. In a party line vote this morning, the House Ways and Means Committee voted to release transcripts of IRS whistleblower testimony. The testimony alleges that the government gave the president's son, Hunter Biden, preferential treatment. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards explains the details. Following a closed-door hearing this morning, members of the House Ways and Means Committee entered a party-line 25 to 18 vote to release transcripts of IRS whistleblower testimony. Every Democrat on the committee voted against the release. In a press conference after the vote, Chairman Jason Smith said this. I can now confirm that we have credible whistleblower testimony alleging misconduct and government abuse that is resulting in preferential treatment for the president's son, Hunter Biden. On Monday, the DOJ announced that Hunter Biden had agreed to plead guilty to two federal tax offenses and that he would be placed on probation. Republican lawmakers said it was a slap on the wrist. Smith said there were three areas of focus in interviews with whistleblowers. Number one, the federal government is not treating taxpayers equally when enforcing tax laws. Number two, 
whistleblowers claim the Biden Department of Justice is intervening and overstepping when it comes to the investigation of the president's son. And number three, these whistleblowers report they have faced almost immediate retaliation. He explained Hunter's tax crimes. These tax crimes cover an estimated 2.2 million in unreported tax on global income streams to Mr. Biden and his associates from Ukraine, Romania, and China, totaling 17.3 million from 2014 to 2019. Mr. Biden personally received $8.3 million. Whistleblowers detail foreign payments to Mr. Biden, including $664,000 from the Chinese company State Energy HK, a large diamond worth $80,000, and a Porsche worth $142,000. Smith said there are other people they need to talk to, but they will continue to follow the facts. Tiffany? The Supreme Court today ruled against the Navajo Nation's fight for more running water. The majority ruled that a treaty from the 1800s didn't require the federal government to ensure the tribe had an adequate water supply. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more. For years, the Navajo Nation has pursued a lawsuit against the United States. It claimed that the U.S. breached its trust responsibilities to ensure the tribe had access to water on its reservation lands. But the federal government and Western states opposed the nation's suit. At oral arguments in March, the U.S. argued that an 1868 treaty did give the tribe rights to more than just land. It included timber, minerals below the surface, and a right to water for the reservation. But... The 1868 treaty didn't impose on the United States a duty to construct pipelines, pumps, or wells to deliver water. Those affirmative duties aren't part of the treaty. Justice Sonia Sotomayor questioned the merits of the treaty. That's quite an odd agreement the tribe entered into, isn't it? They agreed to go back to a piece of their homeland and gave, gave the United States control over the vast majority of it. They agreed to sit to a, a, a land that would permit them to return to agriculture. Similarly, the tribe's attorney argued. In the 1868 treaty, the United States promised the Navajos a permanent homeland. Both parties understood that in promising the Navajos their land, the United States was also promising them the water it needed to sustain life in the arid Southwest. But the Supreme Court on Thursday agreed with the U.S. In a 5-4 to four majority decision, the court ruled that although the 1868 treaty reserved necessary water for the nation to accomplish its purposes, it did not require the U.S. to take affirmative steps to secure water for the tribe. Justice Neil Gorsuch said in a dissenting opinion that the majority misread the Navajos' request. He said that the tribe was not arguing that the U.S. has to pay for infrastructure to access the water. They were only asking the government to formulate a plan to identify the water rights it holds for the tribe. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Donald Trump's former attorney John Eastman is speaking out now in his second day of hearings. The State Bar Court of California is accusing him on multiple charges. NTD's Christina Corona had an opportunity to talk with Eastman following yesterday's court case.
Mr. Eastman, for our viewers who don't know exactly what's going on with your case, what is the California State Bar accusing, accusing you of? Well, they're, they're accusing me of not upholding my oath to support the Constitution of the United States, which is, um, I think, rather interesting since my all of my efforts have been to make sure that unconstitutional conduct in the election did not affect the outcome of the election. They also claim I made a bunch of, bunch of false statements because I insisted that there was election illegality. Uh, and I did that in articles. I did it on Steve Bannon's show. And I did it in briefs filed in a couple of court actions. Do you feel as though the state bar is setting a precedent by trying to suspend your license or disbar you? Well, I, I, I think it's a very dangerous precedent. I've said that uh, before. My attorney has said that. Uh, even some folks left of center who are by no means Trump supporters are starting to realize the danger here. I think it's in caps, uh, ca captured well by uh, the head of the uh, 65 Project, which is an organization that is trying to disbar any attorney that worked on any of the Trump election litigation. So right-wing legal talent will never take on election challenges again. Um, that means that if there is fraud and illegality in the conduct of elections, people will be afraid to step up to challenge it for fear that they would be have to go through what I've been going through. And with regard to the charges brought against you, in your estimation, have you done anything wrong? No, not at all. And all I asked Vice President Pence to do was accede to requests from state legislators to send it back to them, give a brief pause so that they can investigate whether the illegality was significant enough that affected the outcome. And if it didn't, I have in the memo, if it didn't, then Biden is recertified and Biden wins. Do you think, do you really think the state bar has a case or is this some kind of political agenda? Well, I, I don't think they have a case. They did a 38 page, um, 85 paragraph, 11 count complaint against me. We responded wholesome, fulsomely. Uh, my response is 112 pages. You provided counsel to President Trump in 2020 to, assi to assist him furthering his cause. Does he have your back today? Uh, no, we haven't. We haven't spoken much at all uh, since 2021. Um, but, uh, but you know, not because of any controversy or anything. Just it's prudent to kind of keep a little bit arm's length. If this hearing doesn't pan out in your favor. What's next? Uh, the, Cal the California State Bar decision to, it would go to a higher court, I'm assuming. Um, and then uh, if that doesn't go well, I have the right to appeal to the California Supreme Court. And finally, uh, what do you want the viewers to know about you and your case? Are there any final thoughts that you would like to share with us? My whole life has been devoted to the Constitution. And when, when we're deciding an election by unconstitutional conduct, I thought something needed to be done about it, and I stood up to do that. Yes, I'm Christina Corona, and I just want to say thank you for taking the time to do this interview with us this evening. Christina, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Coming up, men, women, and children continue to be trafficked in almost every country in the world. Lawmakers take a closer look at the efforts to fight forced labor. And the fentanyl crisis continues to grow. In California's South Bay area, officials say fentanyl-related deaths have more than doubled in recent months. We'll bring you the details after the break.
Welcome back. We now turn our attention to human trafficking. Men, women and children continue to be trafficked in almost every country around the world. Lawmakers are examining the efforts to fight this heinous crime. Entity's Jason Perry reports. They are posting job opportunities on Facebook and other social media places that appear to be legitimate. Cindy Dyer is the ambassador at large to monitor and combat human trafficking. In a hearing on Thursday held by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, she explained how Chinese criminal gangs trick people into becoming a victim of human trafficking. Individuals think they're going for a legitimate IT job that is going to utilize their skills, linguistic skills, IT skills. When they get there, they are literally locked in a room and they are not allowed to leave and they are given a quota of how much money they have to get from scam operations. The victims have been held in places in Cambodia, Burma, and even in the Philippines. Dyer added that if they don't make that quota, they are tortured and deprived of food and water. She also brought up the Department of State's recently released report on human trafficking, and specifically the Chinese Communist Party's forced labor of Uyghurs and other ethnic and religious minorities. We are aggressively working on implementing, thanks to Congress, the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. We are adding entities to this list so that we can make sure that Americans are not unwittingly using goods and products that were made by individuals held in slavery in the Xinjiang Autonomous region. Another country highlighted at the hearing was Cuba and its human trafficking of medical personnel. Senator Bob Menendez explained. This is a set of circumstances where Cuban doctors and other medical personnel sent to other countries. Uh, the country pays Cuba, not the medical professionals. Um, they take the passports away of these medical professionals so that they can't leave. Um, and they are, in essence, hostage. Um, and it's the equivalent of slave labor from my perspective. And Dyer explained that the U.S. called out 56 countries who received trafficked medical personnel from Cuba. And Senator Menendez explained that human trafficking is not only happening in other countries. This year, the government settled a case where more than 100, mostly Spanish-speaking children, were working graveyard shifts at our nation's largest slaughterhouses. That's dangerous work. Some of them were just 13 years old. To me, that's completely outrageous and unacceptable. To find out how the U.S. ranks different countries around the world in regard to human trafficking and other details, you can find the latest Trafficking in Persons report at state.gov. Jason Perry, NTD News. California's fentanyl-related deaths are not just an issue in San Francisco. 60 miles south in the county of Santa Clara, officials announced that deaths from the drug had more than doubled by the end of May. NTD's David Lamb has the details. Here in Santa Clara County, which is the sixth most populous county in California, officials recently announced a spike in fentanyl drug-related deaths, which went from 17 to 41 in the month of May. The county coroner and chief medical examiner said most fentanyl drug deaths in the county involve fentanyl combined with other drugs, including methamphetamine. Officials continue to warn of fentanyl-laced pills circulating in the community as a portion of victims have unknowingly ingested the drug, thinking they're taking something else. 
The county has launched campaigns to educate the public on fentanyl and the risks of experimental drug use, with the latest campaign aimed at 14 to 29-year-olds. According to the county's website, fentfacts.org, fentanyl is involved in four out of five Gen Z drug deaths nationwide. This is different than drug deaths that we've seen in years past. My daughter, nor the children of the other parents up here, they didn't die of an overdose. Family members of those that died from fentanyl poisoning have demanded statewide action from elected officials. They were poisoned. In my daughter's case, she was seeking Percocet. She received a counterfeit pill made to mimic an oxycodone pill, of which she took half before going to bed two days before Christmas in 2019. The opioid is used to treat severe pain, but it's 50 times stronger than heroin, and a small dosage can be fatal. California lawmakers have been divided on how to decrease drug deaths, such as whether to focus on increasing punishment for drug dealers or put efforts into prevention services. From the Foreign Relations Committee on June 20th, U.S. Democratic Senator Bob Menendez introduced the Strengthening Fentanyl Sanctions Act. It would target Chinese PRC pharmaceutical companies, Mexican drug cartels, as well as foreign individuals involved in global drug trade. In Santa Clara, California, David Lamb, NTD News. The Biden administration wants to replace most combustion engine cars with electric vehicles within the next 10 years. A House committee today examined the proposed emission standards for vehicles. Entity's Arian Postar has the highlights from the hearing. The Biden administration continues to release regulation after regulation to dramatically change transportation and mobility for Americans on a timetable that defies reality. At a Thursday hearing, lawmakers looked at multiple bills which would protect traditional combustion engines like gasoline or diesel. That's after the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, proposed a number of new rules which would set new emission standards for cars and trucks. EPA predicts that through these rules, two-thirds of new light-body vehicles sold in the United States would be electric by 2032. To reach its goal, the EPA set emission standards that only electric vehicles could achieve. The Choice in Automobile Retail Sales Act or the CARS Act prohibits the EPA from moving forward with this proposed rule. However, the Democrat ranking member opposes the act, saying, The Choice in Automobile Retail Sales Act prohibits EPA from finalizing its recently proposed medium-duty and light-duty vehicle standards, blocking the ongoing effort to strengthen tailpipe emission standards for future, future model years. Another one of the bills would ease regulations on using cornstarch as renewable energy. Republicans accuse Democrats of focusing too much on battery-powered vehicles while not taking other forms of energy into account. The U.S. doesn't have the materials needed to produce electric vehicles. That is, that is money that is going to China. China dominates the supply chains. It's China's technology that is being used in electric vehicles. Since when? Is the United States of America following China's lead? I've heard from many of my colleagues, I've heard from the Secretary of Energy that we need to be following China's lead. I don't agree. Democrats support the proposed standards, saying they'll protect the Earth from dangerous emissions which warm the planet. Arian Pastar, NTD News. 
We reached out to Amazon. The company says the FTC's claims are false on the facts and the law. It says it looks forward to proving its case in court. Coming up, former Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro on trial. He's facing a potential eight-year ban from politics. And in France, a parents' association protests against a drag queen storytime session in a public library. Police pressure them to stop the demonstration. Find out the full story here on NTD News. Welcome back. China state media reported that at least 31 people were killed in a gas explosion at a barbecue eatery last night in the northwestern part of the country. The blast happened during peak dining hours with high school students and retirees said to be among the dead. The restaurant is located on a busy street in Yingchuan, a tourist hub in the region. State media reported that the blast was triggered by a leaking liquefied petroleum gas tank at the restaurant. Seven people still undergoing treatment for burns and cuts from broken glass. Accidents due to gas and chemical blasts are not uncommon in China, despite years of efforts to improve safety. In 2021, a gas explosion at a barbecue restaurant in the northeastern part of the country killed four and wounded nearly 50. The latest explosion prompted the authorities to order a safety overhaul across China. Next, an uncertain future. Brazil's former president, Jair Bolsonaro, is facing a potential eight-year ban from politics. He's accused of abusing his power when he questioned the nation's electoral system. NTD's Sam Wong brings us the latest. In Brazil, a trial kicks off today in the capital of Brasilia, and the future of the former Brazilian president is now lying in the hands of the country's federal electoral court. Today, as you know, my trial starts. Actually, my political trial, and the lowest intention on the part of some. I'm not here attacking the electoral count, but the basis of the trial are something unbelievable. Bolsonaro summoned a group of foreign ambassadors last July, and he questioned the reliability of Brazil's voting machines in front of them. The meeting was aired on live television, as well as other media platforms such as YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. The trial will look into whether the act was an abuse of power. If convicted, Bolsonaro will be barred from making any political comeback for the next eight years. The outcome will be determined by a majority vote from the court's seven judges. Opponents said that the purpose of the meeting was to fuel skepticism over an election he had lost. The former president denied the accusation, saying that the intention wasn't for electoral purposes. He added that a president has every right to cast doubt on the nation's electoral system. Bolsonaro's lawyer said that the case was, quote, riddled with ideological falsehood. Last year, the former president lost the election to his liberal rival Lula by a narrow margin of 1.6 percent. To discuss what lies ahead for Bolsonaro, I sat down with Marcos Chagas, the editor-in-chief for the Epic Times Brazil. His supporters uh, are not um, as supportive as they once were, and he is not as, as outspoken as he once was. So I think what lies ahead for him is perhaps um, um, going a little bit out of the, the current trends in politics in Brazil. Shotgas compare Bolsonaro's base with supporters of President Trump. So there are similarities, and I think the main one is the accusations of the possible weaponization of the justice system. That's something Bolsonaro supporters have been talking about. Aside from this case, Bolsonaro is currently under several other investigations. And some, if he's found guilty, could put him behind bars. 
Bolsonaro has faced criticism since the January 8th protests in Brasilia, where his supporters stormed the nation's Congress due to their distrust of Brazil's voting machines. In the face of a polarized electorate, the former president remains steadfast in his claim, insisting that the election was rigged. Sam Wang, NTD News. American reporter Evan Gershkovich lost his latest appeal at a Russian court today against his pretrial detention on charges of espionage. Gershkovich works for the Wall Street Journal and was arrested in late March while on a reporting trip. Russia's security service said he was trying to obtain military secrets. Both Gershkovich and the Journal deny the charge. A Moscow court ruled last month to keep him in custody until the end of August. Today's court proceedings took place behind closed doors. U.S. Ambassador Lynn Tracy, who was not allowed inside the hearing, told reporters outside that she was extremely disappointed by the decision. Gershkovich is being held at a prison in Moscow, which is notorious for its harsh conditions. Turning to France, drag queen story hours are causing a stir in public libraries. A protest organizer says the police and the mayor asked them to stop the demonstration despite public support. NTD's France correspondent David Vives talked with him. LGBT associations organized several story hours in France's southwestern city of Bordeaux this June. The associations invited drag queens to read stories to children in three public libraries. Outside the libraries, members of a parents' association and the nationalist party Reconquête protested. The LGBT associations are funded by the city and have been invited to lead Pride Month initiatives. So what we are talking about are associations that have received well over 60,000 euros in two years from City Hall. So there's a whole bunch of associations and trans activists and pro-LGBT collectives who are part of this, who carry out actions and who organize. And this is where it bothers us, readings for children organized by drag queens. Bonnet says the library director, the police and even the mayor of Bordeaux went to see the protesters and asked them to stop the demonstration. This is after passers-by who took the protesters' brochures, then complained to the library director about the story hour. We also had a visit from the mayor of Bordeaux's police force, the municipal police, who came on a slanderous denunciation to carry out an identity check for homophobic leafleting. The people themselves took our leaflets and sometimes went up to the libraries to tell the library managers what they think. Some parents didn't even think it was possible, so they want to check it out. Several associations have tried to organize a drag queen story hour in other French cities. But this has met with many critics, to the point that some of those initiatives have been barred. According to Bonnet, the LGBT associations don't find success with communities in general, but benefit from strong support from politicians to push their agenda. In any case, ideas don't advance through the masses, they advance through minorities. The people who spread these ideas obviously know this too, and so they don't count on the masses to adopt them. And as it happens, the LGBT lobby here in France is beginning to have a certain power because it's supported by left-wing and far-left political parties. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, a Capitol Hill hearing about protecting pride turned into a discussion on fairness in women's sports, with former college swimmer Riley Gaines front and center. And the race is on for private companies to send the first commercial payload to Mars. Two California firms say they're ready to take on SpaceX. Stay tuned for more when we come back.
Welcome back. And now for your sports news, we have NTD's Dave Martin joining us live. Dave, former NCAA champion swimmer Riley Gaines testified on Capitol Hill yesterday as part of the Senate's hearing on LGBTQ rights. What can you tell us about her testimony? I think the most moving part about her testimony was when she described having to share the same locker room with transgender athlete, that is Leah Thomas, who's formerly known as Will Thomas, whose ranking in the NCAA jumped from 462nd as a male to first as a female. So let's go ahead and play that clip now if we can. Let me be clear about this. We were not forewarned we would be sharing a locker room. No one asked for our consent and we did not give our consent. And I'll, I'll set the scene as swimming locker room is not a place of modesty. You're undressing, you're fully exposed. And we were forced to take off our swimsuit in front of a man who was doing the exact same thing. Yeah, Tiff, I'll also mention that later on, uh, she, was, she referred to that scene again. And she said that when Thomas came into the locker room, she went out to find an official to say, you know, what is with the deal of a man coming into our locker room? And uh, the, it was a man, and she said he casually just kind of told her, well, we got around that by making all of these locker rooms unisex. And so some of the girls actually ended up changing in a janitor's closet. And Dave, in terms of this hearing, did this hearing discuss fairness in sports and why we have separate men's and women's competitions? Yeah, there was actually another lively exchange uh, when Senator John Kennedy was asking one of the other witnesses about this. Uh, this is a Kelly Robinson, who's president of the Human Rights Campaign. She had a different opinion. Uh, Riley Gaines ends up joining in this discussion, so let's play that clip now, too. How many female members of the NBA do you see? Well, I can say that, you know, there's been this news article about men that think that they could beat Serena Williams in tennis right? That they think that they could actually score a point on her. Um, and it's just not the case. She is stronger than that. What's your experience, Ben? Male, female? Both Serena and Venus lost to the 203rd ranked male tennis player, which they're phenoms for women. Now, Tiff, I'd like to point out that in fairness to Ms. Robinson, I don't think she was talking about professional men's tennis players thinking, I th but the average male fan, of course, is not going to beat Serena Williams. But Gaines' testimony there uh, is true, though, what she said. And the Williams sisters, I mean, they have dominated women's tennis. 30 Grand Slam titles between them in singles and plenty more even in doubles. And Dave, moving on to basketball now, the NBA draft is tonight. What can we expect to see? Well, I think the only certainty at this point is that the San Antonio Spurs are going to select this unknown French teenager named Victor Wembanyama. He's unknown because he didn't play college in the U.S. He's only 19 years old, but he led the French League last year in points, rebounds, and block shots. His height is listed anywhere from 7'2 to 7'5. He weighs approximately 240 pounds. He, but unlike tall players, I mean, this is tall even for the NBA, this guy can move. He plays on the perimeter, too. Uh, he's a good three-point shooter. He can drive to the basket. Some have called him the best prospect since LeBron James. Now, i got to say, not every draft has this high of a prospect. But for the Spurs, uh, you know, this is the third time a charm for them. 1987, they drafted David Robinson first overall. He went to the Hall of Fame. Ten years later, they got Tim Duncan, another Hall of Famer. So uh, the Spurs franchise has been very fortunate here. Lots to look out for here, Dave. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tiff.
For over half a century, missions to Mars have been funded and operated mostly by state-backed aerospace agencies of different countries. But now the race is on for private companies to deliver the first commercial payload to the Red Planet. NTD's David Jang spoke with a Southern California space company that's among those who want to take on SpaceX. California-based Impulse Space and Relativity Space jointly announced at the 2023 Humans to Mars Summit that the timeline trajectory for their private Mars mission has changed. They're now expecting to launch sometime in 2026. If successful, they will still beat out SpaceX in the race for private companies to send interplanetary missions to Mars. We settled on, on the Mars mission. We could have gone to the moon, and certainly there are others doing that, but the Mars one is somewhat unique. Secondly, we aren't reinventing the wheel in the sense that uh, this mission is very much akin to what was done by NASA for the InSight mission. According to Impulse Space website, the plan is for the company's capsule and Mars lander to be carried by Relativity Space 3D-printed Terran R rocket. Flying this 3D printed rocket is going to be a huge milestone for relativity. I, I'm quite convinced this is the, the biggest 3D printed uh, object really ever flown in aerospace. After traveling through space for over half a year, the cruise vehicle will inject the entry capsule into the Mars orbit. The lander will then perform a propulsive landing using purpose built engines developed in house at Impulse Space. This would complete the first commercial payload delivery to the surface of Mars. Both companies emphasize that the mission is just to deliver commercial payloads, not humans. As to the burning question on everybody's mind, when will we be able to put humans on Mars? There's a, a fair amount of infrastructure and study that needs to be done before humans go to Mars. And we, we are going to enable that, but uh, that says we're going to be doing several missions in every window, 26, 28, 31, roughly. Uh, so it may take beyond that to get humans to Mars. In the commercial competition going to Mars, SpaceX, Boeing, Blue Origin, and Virgin Galactic have all stated or expressed interest in leading expeditions to the fourth planet in our solar system. Meanwhile, NASA and the China National Space Administration are in a tacit race to put humans on Mars. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.